I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about sling and stuff. Am I going to get sued? Are we going legal on this? I like football. I like football season and all the things that go with it. Happy Joe Flacco Friday, everybody. Yes, the dream continues for the Cleveland Browns and for the 87-year-old Joe Flacco, who had another impressive game against the New York Jets. And uh, the Browns are rolling. They made the playoffs for the first time in a couple of years, and they're a very real threat to everybody. So we're going to talk about that today with our guy, Brad Spielberger, as well as answering some questions on this fine Friday morning. How's it going, Brad? Going fantastic. It's a Flacco Friday, baby. It is a Flacco Friday. But before we get into any of that, uh, it's time to talk about securing your family's financial future, starting with Fabric by Gerber Life. It makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoying life. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash pffnfl policies issued by western southern life insurance company not available in certain states prices subject to underwriting and health questions all right brad so clearly joe flacco is the story right now i mean what was being even advertised as like a defensive battle right normally you see those the matchups that they that the tv companies build the next upcoming game on it's quarterback versus quarterback or quarterback versus wide receiver this was Miles Garrett versus Sauce Gardner. It was two defensive players. This was what this was being talked up as being. And right away, it was like immediate touchdown followed by immediate touchdown followed by another touchdown. We're like, this is going to be 45-43 with offenses rolling. And then, you know, eventually some turnovers started to happen and, and the second half happened. But kind of crazy immediate offensive production from both sides. Well, it's 2023 game possible. I think Al Michaels said it was the highest scoring first half in a game, not yeah. just Thursday, like any week this year uh, or any day of the week. <laughs> yeah, in like four or five years. So, yeah, the script was good for both teams. And then the Browns just continued to score drive after drive. David Njoku creating a bunch of yards after the catch. Jerome Ford looked good in space as well. Like no Amari, too. You'd think. I don't know. It was bizarre. I, I I couldn't believe the first half at all. I was just sitting there like, what is happening in this game? Yeah, no Amari Cooper. That was a, a kind of late scratch heading into the game with a, an injury. And you're like, okay, no Amari Cooper going up against good defense. Like, this is where bad Joe Flacco comes back to the surface. And, you know, he had a couple of ugly plays in there. There was a, He had a turnover-worthy completion, which you don't see too often. Um, but the fumble where he gets back on top of it, the the turnover-worthy completion to Elijah Moore, another the, the pick itself, obviously. Um, so it wasn't like a perfectly clean game from Flacco, but productive. Like it was another one of those games where 
the difference between him and other quarterbacks in this offense is he is moving the ball way easier. He's getting way more production for every mistake that he makes. I think the beautiful thing, too, is like it's a lot of boot action and rollouts and like getting him on the move, uh, particularly rolling to his left. I think he's been accurate. He's been able to generate a ton of velocity still. Like it's it's not like he's just sitting there like a statue. Um, it, it's kind of a blend, I think, of what Stefanski likes to do and obviously still changing from the PJ Walker, DTR, and, and even Deshaun, I suppose, offense. But yeah, it's just like it, it shouldn't work. It keeps working. It's just a glorious, glorious thing. But I think there is an element of like he's just letting it rip. And there are going to be a ton of turnover worthy plays. We were talking pre show. He could have had five interceptions against my Bears. Uh, and they found a way to win there with 200 uh, passing yards in the fourth quarter. But uh, there also is the element of. He's just like, like this offense was so constricted to start the year and, and they were leading on the run game, but they had heavy box counts. They were defenses shooting down on them. You can't right now. Like you, you better respect Joe Flacco going deep right now. Yeah. Somebody um, made the point that, you know, Flacco is changing the offense in terms of opening up what they're able to do. Like he is making every area of the field a live threat again. And okay, there are going to be mistakes along the way, but that, that in itself changes the dynamic of the offense. Like opposing defenses have to respect more things with Flacco than they do with any of the other quarterbacks the Browns have had playing this season. And whether or not he plays better on a down-to-down basis, like he doesn't need to for that to still be an improvement because that threat every single play is important. Like particularly in the playoffs where you are forcing defenses to respect more things and therefore not focus too heavily on any one thing. I think that's my takeaway of the conversation. You know, I know our coworker Timo Riske, who just hates fun. He posted uh, a tweet earlier about how the Browns' offense is still generating negative EPA over the last month. Um, and, and look, like we should poke holes in everything. There are a lot of negative plays there. A lot of his turnovers too. Right. Um, but I think the, the question from that stems is: Okay, this is one of, if not the best defenses in 2023. Does it make sense to have a high variance quarterback who is taking a lot of chances, risks, and yeah, they're working out right now? But should they be kind of a neutered offense and and, and worry more about matriculating the ball down the field as opposed to explosives? A, I would just say like no in a general sense. But B, even if you do want to pivot to that come playoff time, because of what you've put on tape the last month, like defenses can't just be sitting on that and expecting that because you always can then pivot, have a hard play action, boot rollout, and Flacco can fling it 70 yards downfield. So like you are even you're helping yourself if you do want to play that style. Because if you were doing that every single week and then going into the playoffs and everyone knew what you're going to do, I think it's easier to pivot to that than it would be uh, to, to do the inverse, right? We're like, all right, we're going to open things up and start slinging it like in the playoffs against a good playoff opponent uh, on the road. But yeah, I think it, it just helps them by establishing you know respect from opposing defenses. Yeah, I think the composition of some of these numbers is important more than just the number itself. Like we talked about this on the show a little bit uh, the other day, Nick Mullins and Josh Dobbs, right? they have, have essentially ended up with the exact same EPA per play for the Minnesota Vikings, and yet the style of play couldn't be more different. The overall, like, how they've arrived at that number couldn't be further apart, and I think there's some importance to that. And the same thing is true. I haven't run the numbers since last night's game, but before, 
uh, yesterday's game, Flacco was basically in the same area as the, all the other Browns quarterbacks in terms of EPA per play this season, right? So he hadn't, he hadn't made that kind of improvement to the team, but how he was doing it is obviously very different from any of these other quarterbacks. And I think that is a relevant part to all this. It isn't just like, what is your overall EPA per play? What is the passer rating? What is the whatever? Like how, how that is comprised, how it comes about, I think actually makes a difference certainly going forward yeah no, no doubt about it and, and then also the context of i mean this is a jets team that coming into this game was third in the nfl and epa per play allowed on defense with an elite schedule i mean they've shut down what mahomes stroud josh allen w- one and a half times like like, like you go you know, jalen hurts played poorly against them Dak did have a good game against him he's like the only of the upper echelon qbs that i think really oh no, i guess miami too it too they, they obviously played well against his defense but like this is an elite elite unit and you have the browns no amari down three starting tackles or two starting tackles in the, in the top backup in dewan right. jones uh who's effectively been a starter most of the year and you're still doing this. Uh, and again, the Jets, maybe there's some quit in them. Obviously, their season is over. Didn't go out how they expected it to go. But yeah, also fourth before this week uh, in e-paper dropback allowed. And, and they were just getting carved up. Yeah, and I felt like even, I felt like this was a game where their defense didn't quit, actually. Like they've had some, they've had some games this year where I think that kind of happened, where they went, oh, look, to hell with this. The offense isn't going to do anything. We're out. Um, the Jets' defense in the second half actually gave their offense enough chances to make this happen, and they just didn't. Like, they had two or three drives in the sort of late third quarter, early fourth quarter, where if they'd put points on the board, like a touchdown, this game could have become interesting down the stretch, and it never did because every time they got a stop, the Browns got one too. And, you know, like Trevor Simeon just didn't have quite enough Will Levis in him, right, when he needed that first down collapsed just before the the first down marker but I felt like the Jets defense actually did keep fighting throughout the game they had some rough plays early on where they just let David Njoku wander through the defense multiple times but after that I think they clamped down better in the second half Um, they got some good pressure they were able to get some stops they got some turnovers and their offense just didn't have enough again all the way through the season so it didn't it didn't matter they'd already dug themselves a deep enough hole that they couldn't get out of it without another defensive score coming on the board, which, by the way, they probably got screwed out of with that uh, fumble that got that that wasn't given live and then got gave given to them on on review. Right, Jermaine Johnson picked that up and scored with it. So, if that had been allowed go, that would have been a touchdown and made it interesting. Yeah, we're not going to do a ref show, but that was like the most obvious fumble in the history of, of organized football. I don't really know what they, what they saw there. <laughs> I mean, also, I guess we'll touch on it. And again, it's a lost season. It's Trevor Simeon. I get that. But I was chuckling. They showed uh, the, the graphic. If you're watching the Prime Vision, I don't, I don't know if they showed it on the main broadcast. Uh, the guy who does a lot of the fourth down decision making for the Jets, his name's Dan Shamash. And I guess they call his game planning smash ball. Um, I think uh, apparently I'm being facetious because it's probably Robert Sala, not him. But I guess smash ball is you smash the ball with your foot with a punt when it's fourth and six at the Browns 39 yard line and you're down seven po- uh, 17 points. Like, I just I never understand stuff like that. It's like in a bowl game when a five and seven team in a bowl game is punting on like fourth and two. Like I don't think if I was a head coach of a college football team five and seven in a bowl game, I'd punt the entire time. Like I just it's just bizarre to me. But yeah, so like the the Jets also just didn't even try to win this game when they could have you know converted some late fourth downs and and made it interesting. Yeah, you would think that once you're eliminated from everything, like 
the the level of fear, like what have we got to lose, should rapidly diminish, and you should just get hyper aggressive because what's the downside? Like we're probably losing the game already. We're already in a hole. Like what the hell? Might as well go out for it and see if we can we can go down swinging. Um, getting back to Flacco for a minute, like this is such an insane story now. I mean, old man Flacco with his gray beard and his five kids and his you know sleepy demeanor on the sideline because it's it's late past his bedtime as an East Coast dad. This is now his best PFF grade since 2014. Uh, it's his second highest big time throw rate since like since 2013. Uh, it's he's still got a fairly high turnover-worthy play rate, but like this is the best play we've seen from Flacco in the better part of a decade, which is nuts. Like that shouldn't. I mean, he showed a couple of games like this ish last year for the Jets, you know, where he put up a ton of yards, 300 back-to-back games, and then the wheels fell off, right? And he had a a 27 grade against the Bengals, had six turnover-worthy plays. That hasn't happened yet for the Browns, and and maybe won't happen. But if he avoids that complete and total implosion we're just getting this weird late career yolo joe flacco where he just goes out there and slings it and sees what happens this is a guy who like five or six years ago now i think it was where he was eight of 18 for 28 yards with two picks <laughs> i don't know if you remember that box score i don't know that was at the broncos or one one of his many stops maybe the ravens still towards the end of that that run before lamar took over it's remarkable it really really is and then all the context we just added into it as well I mean, Kevin Stefanski already has a Coach of the Year award, and there are a lot of coaches doing things with backup quarterbacks. Maybe you just get, we'll just give him Comeback Player of the Year, I suppose. Um, that'll be who gets the award there. But no, it, it is remarkable. And I think and the interesting thing is, like, if you have maybe one trait or talent or skill that is still at an elite or or very, very good level, um, and that for him that's arm strength, I think he still has an absolute hose, uh, even in his late 30s, like, Maybe you can find a way to construct an offense around that because he's always been a mobile. He's always had the, the limitations that he has now, maybe more exacerbated. But it, yeah, it's it really is one of the funnier stories, uh, you know, of a crazy, crazy year of, of backup quarterback stories. I mean, truly like breaking records for the month of December, one of the greatest months if you take out like the eight interceptions, but one of the greater productive months like we've seen in a very long time. Um he, he kind of alluded to this a little bit in the interview afterwards. Uh, I don't want to put words into his mouth too much, but he basically suggested that, you know, late in his career, uh, once he stopped being the guy, right, once he reached the point in his career where he was now a backup or an emergency quarterback or, or whatever, once he stopped, once he's going to run out of chances as a true starter, as a, a plan A, it, it's kind of changed his mentality. Like he went from, he, he started to appreciate just, having the opportunity to go and play football for a living. And it's almost like that has now transformed him into Ryan Fitzpatrick, right? He's now gone. He's done what we were t- saying the Jets haven't done, right? Like, what the hell? Like, let's just go out swinging. Let's just let's just loose the cannon, start firing this over the field. And if, I, if we lose, if I, you know, throw a bunch of turnovers, who cares? I, get, I was out of the league anyway. Doesn't matter, right? This is a rare opportunity to just go down playing the way you want to play the game. And if it, if it comes out good, great. If it doesn't, I was already done, right? I've already had a career. So it's almost like this liberating thing for him that he has no downside anymore. He's got no fear. He's just out here firing it around. He's not being conservative. And so far it is paying off like more than it's costing him. 
Yeah, you're not looking over your shoulder or worried about getting yanked, especially in this situation, right? Like, it's even with all the mistakes, he's probably not going to get pulled at any point, um, you know, barring an injury the rest of the way. Yeah, no, it is definitely like he's playing way, way more freely than probably recent years. And there is something to it. Because, yeah, I mean, this guy, people forget. I mean, his playoff run is one of the greatest playoff runs of all time. Like, it's got history. Uh, he has got that form. in him. He just has been super inconsistent. And it's, at a certain point, became like a. Uh, a defensive pass interference merchant uh, for a stretch there. But, no, it's like I said, I honestly, if you just cater things around uh, one top-end trait or talent and then have a guy that just is playing freely, doesn't really worry about the downside, I, I guess this is what you get. Um, yeah, it, it is. It's fascinating. After that, uh, the turnover-worthy completion, again, I was, I was talking to Steve, and I'm like, he might be the greatest of all time at generating positive uh, EPA plays out of like fundamentally bad throws between his patented underthrown pass interference uh, career, you know, signature throw and that type of throw. The man just seems to get good results with bad process sometimes. Uh, the other note of caution is I saw somebody tweeting that, you know, it's been, it's, I can't remember the last time the Browns have embraced a quarterback like this because obviously. You look at the way they're they're reacting to Flacco right now. Tyler over there in the booth. The man's got a Flacco tattoo on his ass Flacco, at this point. Um, you know the 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 level of love outpouring for Flacco is amazing. I would, however, suggest that the Browns fans tend to do this for basically every quarterback they have, which is what makes that lengthy uh, nameplate jersey so tragic. Is they did this for Charlie Fry. They did this for Johnny Manziel. They did this for Baker when he won them the playoff, when he got them to the playoffs for the first time. They do this for every quarterback, and now Joe Flacco's the next guy. And, you know, let's just hope that he doesn't break their hearts as well. Hometown kid Brian Hoyer was the future at one point. Like, there's, yeah, there, there, we could go to on a list of, you know, you show some flashes and, uh, you know, you're the, you're the future. But, Hey, look, they deserve it. They deserve to have fun with it. I mean, they're legitimately in the race for the number one seed in the AFC with their fourth quarterback going into Week 18. Obviously, it's not super likely that it happens, but the fact that it's possible at all uh, is quite a miracle. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. He's not like the larger conversation of like, is he going to be back next year and all that? Like, no, like probably not. I and mean, maybe I guess as a backup, I suppose. But then, you know, Watson will throw one pick and there will be like Flacco chants echoing throughout <laughs> the stadium. So I don't know if they can do that. And they, the Browns become a far scarier playoff team to any opponent than if they simply had, you know, a game-managing quarterback that was limited and wasn't going to make mistakes but wasn't going to do much positive either. Like the fact that in any given game you could get the high end of Joe Flacco and if that happens – you, you run up against a team that's putting up a ton of yards on offense and has the best defense in the NFL. I mean, Miles Garrett in that game absolutely wrecked shop. He was destroying Mekhi Becton. Now, he had there was some, a couple of negative plays in there as well, but, dude, that guy's – I think he had 10 pressures in the game. Most of them were pretty impactful pressures as well, um, and he was ruining Mekhi Becton, who's not a terrible left tackle. I mean, there were far worse tackles out there than, than Mekhi Becton and Garrett – was doing that to him. The Browns can do that to anybody in the playoffs, and Flacco could catch fire at any given moment. That is a team nobody wants to play. Yeah, Lucia Highly defense, too. I, he was as dominant as I've seen him in a game. The inside move on Makai Becton worked every single time. Like, he would just take one hard jab to the outside, Becton would overset, and then he would just run inside. And I think I saw it work six times. So, yeah, like, the 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 pick from, was it Ronnie Hickman, who also quietly has been awesome the last, like, month since he took over for Thornhill, Delp, Delp it out now, too. I think he was um, 
more in the box last night, kind of doing different things. Um, yeah, I thought it was weird he didn't get drafted out of Ohio State. He was a productive player, maybe tested poorly or whatever, but clearly an instinctual guy and a guy that can make plays around the football. Um, he had a pick a couple weeks ago, too, I want to say. So, I mean, this unit top to bottom is really, really loaded uh, and fun, and most of these guys should be back come playoff time. Martin Emerson should have had a pick in that game. He, he dropped one. Yeah, no, they're, they're a scary team, and yeah, you know, the Garrett – uh, he, he, when he wins Defensive Player of the Year, and, and and Pittsburgh blames PFF and the nerds and all that, like it's it's inevitable, and I, and I accept it. If you watch that game last night and don't think it was one of the more dominant performances, just because his box score, what do you have? One sack only. Yeah. Um, I mean, he he impacted half a dozen plays uh, substantially, if not more. And it was. It's one of those games, though, where like. The reason, like, he should have had a second sack at least. I mean, there was a play where he whipped the right tackle and didn't like Trevor Simeon got away from him and ends up scrambling up the middle gets a few yards like that was an actual play where Garrett should have finished that should have had another sack didn't and that like that that was a sort of it's not a negative play because the pressure was instant like it's still a positive pass rush um but it is a play that like he should have had a higher grade on because he should have finished it and maybe other pass rushers would have finished it uh but yeah like a dominant outing from him and insane all the way through the season, like Miles Garrett absolutely has a solid defensive player of the year candidate candidacy. And it isn't just PFF that thinks it. Like Brandon Thorne, you know, is is the definition of a tape guy, right? Like he goes and does his own sort of high quality sack metric right, that he, I think is what he calls it. But basically whether the sack was actually that type of play, right? Instant type, instant dominant win, or was it a cleanup play? All those kinds of things. And Garrett is like through the roof in terms of high quality impactful pass rushes this season so the tape people agree as well as the stat people it's literally just the people counting like box score numbers and the, the slightly more advanced box score numbers they're like nope it's definitely tj watt over miles garrett the numbers always say what is better but they don't necessarily this year on the player talking about too, where where Simeon uh, squirts up the middle so there was a there's a video going around that's like oh it's an unblocked pressure that's the, the that's the biggest tell and the funniest thing ever because it, it's not unblocked pressure. The yeah. t- tight end chips him. It doesn't do a good job of it. And the right tackle, he is looking at a linebacker. I think it's it's uh, Wusu Koromoa, but then quickly pivots to trying to block Miles Garrett as well. But Garrett is so fast around the edge that he just beats him to the spot. Like, we know what an unblocked pressure is. Yeah, he's probably had some this year. That was not one of them. And, yeah, he should have finished the play for sure. Uh, but I, just, I was just laughing at that because I was like, he made that look like an unblocked pressure because that's how quick his get-off was. Um, but, yeah, anyway, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that story is a whole other story. That defense is so fun. Um, at all three levels, they have playmakers. And, and this cliche is the most overused ever. Uh, they are a team that no one wants to play uh, come playoff time. They, they, I mean, they're the definition of that. I've talked myself into the Rams being that maybe on the NFC, but, like, for, you might not want to play the the Rams or you don't feel great about it, but you are terrified of the Browns on the other side. Like it's a different, it's a different proposition in terms of teams you don't want to face. Um, anyway, we're gonna get into a couple of mailbag questions, but first we got to talk about Prize Picks and our lineup this week. What do we got here? We got Rashad White going for more than 69 and a half rushing yards for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We got DeAndre Hopkins, New Hopkins, going for more than 45. Sorry, 44. 54, Jesus, 54 and a half receiving yards uh, for the Tennessee Titans with Will Levis back in the lineup. And then we have Matthew Stafford going for more than 255 and a half 
passing yards. That is our prize picks lineup, which I think uh, maybe I'm open to be corrected, but I think we're still over. I don't think we've hit on a single prize picks lineup yet this season. Um, I'm not holding that against anybody, anybody in particular. I'm just saying that as an institution, we appear to have been uh, over and struck out every single time. Um, anyway, if you want to, I would suggest fading our lineups rather than dragging along with them. But however you want to do it. If you want to play with us or some of Price Pick's favorite players like rapper Meek Mill and comedian Andrew Schultz, you can find community plays under the Promos tab of the app to view entries from some of the biggest names in the Price Picks community each week. And of course, we give you ours live on this show. Price Picks also offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. For football and basketball games, if you have a player that exits in the first half and does not return in the second, that player is rebooted. Price Picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. Um, go to pricepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. That's pricepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Price Picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. All right, Brad. Let's move on to some questions. We've got some interesting quarterback questions in uh, from the Discord, and I think a lot of them are, are fascinating based off what we've just been kind of talking about with Joe Flacco. This one came in from somebody called Option Zero. Uh, over 72 quarterbacks have started games for NFL teams this year, which seems absurd. What, if anything, have we learned from this unusually large sample of backup quarterback play? Does the relative success of Jake Browning, Tommy DeVito, Joe Flacco, Gardner Minshew, Josh Dobbs to an extent mean that some teams were smart or lucky with how they handled backup quarterbacks? Is it surrounding talent? Is it the offensive coordinator? How do you guys break it all down? I'll just say with all due respect, including Tommy Cutlets in there is like the dragon meme Cutlets. where there's the two smart dragons and the third dragon. <laughs> yeah, like I took like 10 sacks a game. Um, but hey, beat the Packers. Beat the Packers. So we'll always love them. Uh, but yeah, I, no, I think we honestly did learn a decent bit. The, the big thing always since the Eagles win with, with Nick Foles has been that there are some clubs that just don't, I think, value enough um, and appreciate enough having a quality backup. For the most part, though, it's like, if you're the Jets and you lose Aaron Rodgers, like your season is over, and I get that. But I mean, we're talking about Joe Flacco the whole show. Like that, that, that team's probably right. the equivalent. They have an elite defense, and they have a quarterback that's just slinging it to Garrett Wilson and taking risks, taking chances elsewhere. And maybe they are a playoff fringe team. I think the market's going to be pretty strong for those guys. I think we're going to see, you know, a lot of those guys get paid more than they did last year. Minshew, I think it was one year, three and a half million. Even a Baker, who obviously is, is a starter now and might get like a Geno Smith type deal, came in at one year, four million. I want to say that that position is going to be appreciated more. I think also just because of 17 games and concussion protocol and all these things, like your starting quarterback's probably going to miss two, three games a year. Um, and you and going two and one versus one and two or whatever because of a better backup is very meaningful for playoff seeding and winning a division and all those things. I kind of wonder though how predictable it is. Like I've always had quite a lot of sympathy for that concept that we talked about. I think on yesterday's show that that Tom Moore quote on Peyton Manning's backups that you know if Peyton goes down, it's done. Forget it. So we don't. There's no point in practicing that, right? What is if if he's out? 
his backup is not doing anything. And we saw that. Like when Peyton Manning did go down, they had a whole season of Scott Tolzien or whatever, a quarterback. That got them the next number one overall pick for Andrew Luck. Like that's, that's what they knew would happen at any moment if Peyton Manning went down for any period of time. And they were comfortable with that. He was, generally speaking, you know, durable right up until the neck injury that put him down for the first time for any, for, for the, in his career. And they were like, look, if he, if he goes down, we're, we're accepting that's the season up in smoke. Um, so we'll try and keep it's him the up. G-rated right. version. It's the G-rated version of the quote you're getting. Absolutely, yeah. But that was the that was the bargain they were willing to make, right? Now, um, and I think Peyton Manning helped that because the man was unusually good at avoiding sacks and hits. And, you know, he played into part of why you were willing to embrace that kind of strategy in a way you probably wouldn't if your quarterback was Baker Mayfield or whatever, a guy that's, you know, going to take significantly more hits than that. But I've always had sympathy for that idea of, look, it's hard enough to find an elite quarterback in today's NFL. You put all the chips into that guy, and if he's, at, he, if he's not there, forget it. It's, it's already done. The fact that you're slightly better off if you invested more in his backup, I, I, don't, know that there's much, I don't know that there's much point in that, to be honest. Um, Here's the oh, – yeah, go ahead. Well, but, so – Quick counter. So winning losing games, I think we probably agree. I would say – and this is just an anecdotal example, but – Two counters. One, development of other players on the roster, like what Josh Downs got to work with versus what Jalen Hyatt got to work with to grow his game as a rookie wide receiver. And again, there's other factors in whatever context that play there. But like maybe Jalen Hyatt had more meaningful in-game Sunday reps if he played with a competent backup quarterback. Obviously, Tyrod is. So off the top of my head. The second thing is like getting a trade package or a compensatory pick, like the Saints getting a third-round pick for Teddy Bridgewater, who had a five-game win streak, goes to Carolina for a huge deal, the Saints get a third-round pick. So, like, the other kind of spill-out externalities as well. But I, I, we, we largely agree uh, with the Peyton Manning G-rated quote. Yeah, well, so, but I also think, you know, we're seeing now there's obviously value to having a backup quarterback that can win you a few games and your season not being completely up in smoke. But my question this season is sort of becoming – how predictable is that? How much can you actually say or identify this guy is a good backup versus what I'm starting to believe is that the the tier of quarterbacks that most backups fit into, that kind of marginal starter slash actual backup, that it might be the tier that's being swelled the most in, in recent years. Now we've got tons of these guys who can come in, look okay for a couple of games, and then the wheels fall off and it all goes to hell. And I don't know that you can tell when that's going to happen. Like, Jake Browning has had two games where he's looked basically like a non-functional quarterback and three games where he looked like a star. And can you tell if that's going to happen? Like, is that – if you could know when the order of that was going to happen or how long you were going to get until the wheels fell off, you would be good. But then the flip side of that is like the Minnesota Vikings, right, who – Josh Dobbs has looked like that as well, and then they get him in that last couple of games, and he can't move the ball anymore. So you bring in Nick Mullins, and that lasts like a game, and then he throws seven turnover-worthy plays. You're like, so they're now bouncing from quarterback to quarterback to quarterback. Theoretically, one of these guys should be able to string together a few games of high-level play, and they haven't been so far. So, you know, should they have just ridden through the rough patch with the Josh Dobbs and said no he is a good backup quarterback we've seen it already so let's push through this or do you just end up in this tough world where it's like you don't you never know which quarterback to to roll with because any one of them is capable of a stinker at any given moment 
No, it's fair. And obviously, the I mean, the coaching and the supporting cast around them is a massive variable, too. Like, if, if you don't have Jamar Chase to throw the ball to, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's the only reason, but right. probably not a coincidence. Those were the good Jake Browning games, and he goes out and, and can't do anything against the Steelers without him. So, no, I, I hear you. It probably is we're trying to, like, allocate a lot of emotion and results-based stuff to to quarterbacks. I would just say... Like, if you're coming into a season where you think it's a competitive year, because uh, if it's not, like, it's a different conversation. But, and you could spend, you know, two years, $10 million on a backup, or one year, $1.5, and have a, you know, again, these are just random names. Like, have an Easton stick. Like, if I thought I was going into a, con- a contending window, uh, I would I would spend a little extra on backup quarterback. But, but Jake Browning is going to be a good example, right? Because after this year's performance, Jake Browning is probably going to get himself, he's probably going to be in that category now of like he's a high-end backup, right? He's shown that he's a really good backup in the NFL. But prior to him getting on the field, there was literally no evidence that would say that was true. Like he had already been cut from an NFL team previously. He, he's on nothing for the Bengals right now, contract-wise. Like he's getting paid less than a million dollars this year. Um, in In preseason and training camp where he had all of the reps as the number one guy because Joe Burrow was down with that calf injury he looked awful like we were at Bengals practices you're like they can't move the ball with Jake Browning as the quarterback like if this is who they have to start the season with they're screwed and then he comes out you know midway through the year when when Burrow goes down again and immediately looks like a star you're like so I don't know if it's even predictable that your high-end backup is going to be is going to be a high-end backup or if it's just random that there's like the next tier of 20 or 30 quarterbacks are all the same guy. And in any given week, they could look completely non-functional. You're like, this guy can't even be in the league. Or they could put up like an 85 grade and just start throwing the ball to like playmakers. And you're like, oh, how do we sleep on this guy? No, that's fair. That's fair. And then the, we can move on. But a larger conversation of like stylistically too, like – the Pittsburgh thing I think is interesting where like Trubisky is your high variance. Like he could be great. He could be absolutely horrendous. Uh, and Rudolph, you know, the ceiling is way lower, but like the floor is a good bit higher. Um, and obviously that worked against Cincinnati, a defense that's just, I mean, just terrible this year, giving up explosives, yards after the contact and all these things. And, you know, 85 yard slant routes go to the house and we think Rudolph's great. And it's like, no, obviously that was a George Pickens play, but it also is, you know, to a degree, a Mason Rudolph play just by throwing to his first read and just keeping things simple. So I think that's part of it, too. Like the, like you've talked about, the Dobbs versus, I guess, Mullins was erratic as well. But, like, what is the style and what is their, you know, are, are they high variance or low variance? And what would be more beneficial given the context of the rest of our roster? I think my takeaway from this year, if I was a team, I, I'd still generally think that that Tom Moore quote is the reality. Like, if I have a star quarterback, if he goes down, I'm probably screwed anyway. So I'm not, I'm not putting a ton of resources into a backup quarterback who's probably bad anyway. Um, but I would be quite ready to just cycle through them. Like, I would not – if I, so if I'm the Jets, right, Rodgers goes down after five snaps. I already know my season's done. But I'm not – limiting myself to like well I my options are Zach Wilson and Tim Boyle and maybe we can bring in Trevor Simeon off the practice squad like I am casting a net far and wide and bringing in like a whole vast array of backups and you might get a couple of weeks and then I'm on to the next guy and I'm going to keep swinging to see if any of these guys can find anything and if if it happens I'll ride five or six games of you know a Josh Dobbs or whoever you find off the street a Joe Flacco and keep going like I'm not 
you know, I'm not looking at, frankly, there's guys on the street that might be better than my backup quarterback right now. So I'm going to keep swinging and keep trialing people out and just see what I can get out of it. Maybe it's just the uh, opponents don't have any tape on them. So you basically have a Seriously. threshold where you're like, all right, the opponents now have seen enough. They know this guy's strengths and weaknesses to a degree. Therefore, he's dead to me. But if a guy's been – like a Browning is a good example. Been yeah. on rosters but never got into NFL action. Played a thousand, you know, tons of snaps in college at Washington in high leverage football. And then – but hasn't played the NFL. So like people don't really know what he is. All right, as soon as the tape is out, all right, boom, on to the next, you know, wh- whoever that person would be. I, I honestly think there's something to that. And it's not even specifically like what he is, but every time a guy like that gets into the NFL, the scheme is going to change for what that team thinks he can do, right? Like, because you're, you're, not, you're not creating an offense for that guy, but you're modifying one that already existed for somebody else. So when a Jake Browning gets into the NFL, it's not what the last tape I saw from Jake Browning in college or whatever. That's almost irrelevant. It's like, what are they doing with, to, to Joe Burrow's offense to make Jay Brown, Jake Browning functional over the last couple of weeks? That is what I need to defend, and that takes you a couple of weeks to work out. So I absolutely think there's some logic to that idea of, you probably have a two or three week window before teams figure out exactly what you've done to make this guy viable with within your offense. And at that point, his time is probably done. I mean, that might. I mean, that that kind of describes a little bit of Cutlets, right? Cutlets, Cutlets was half decent for a while, and then very quickly you figure out, all right, this is what they're doing now, and now that's done. So yeah, I think there's some validity to that. Okay, next question. This one is from the Fighting Shanahan's. Uh, my question is around the standard of offensive line play and whether it's contributing to the number of quarterback injuries we've seen this season. My understanding is that the spread system has, over the last few decades, turned into the offensive choice at the college level and that this, in turn, has simplified college offensive line blocking schemes, meaning that when players get drafted, they almost have to relearn playing tackle, guard, or center because NFL blocking schemes are much more complex. Obviously, this takes time, and with the lack of practice time now available, impacts the quality of pass blocking. This leads to more quarterback injuries. So, does PFF data support a steady decline in overall offensive line play over the last five or ten years? If so, this would seem to fall in line with reduced practice time uh, teams now have. Surely, the most common sense way to address this would be to increase in-season rosters to 58 or 60 players and then increase padded practice time to improve quality of play. This would, in theory... Keep more starting quarterbacks injury-free and keep the NFL games a high-quality product. Would love to hear the thoughts of Steve, Sam, and or Trevor. You got left out of this, Brad. Just Trevor on this show and how you guys would address these issues. Sorry, this rambled and jumped around a lot, but I pretty much wrote it up on the fly. So the Fighting Shanahan's is asking a question, which I'm pitching to you, Brad, even though he left you out of his list entirely. Care about this answer, but I'll, I'll give it. I actually think it's a great question and, and a fascinating conversation because I, I think the biggest lesson I've learned from the spring leagues everyone always says, like, it's because there isn't enough good quarterbacks. That's why the leagues are struggling. They don't score any points, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, that is a huge part of it. We also just talked about, though, how there's like a, a cluster of 50 backup quarterbacks that are all kind of in the same boat. Um, to me, it was always like, no, these guys cannot pass protect and they cannot hold up and give these quarterbacks any time to do anything. Sure, the, the practice rules changing is part of it. It's not going to go back, so it's there isn't right. a, a resolution there. Um, and, and the NFL did, in the latest CBA, make it so you can't have a larger game day rosters. It's now 48, uh, potentially, instead of 46, if you're carrying 10 offensive linemen. So they're trying to find ways to sort of address this issue and have more offensive linemen on each roster. 
I think it just comes down to watch college football. Offensive linemen aren't asked to do anything. Like they're all playing these the spread out zone. Um, you know, the, the formations are so spread out. The gaps between linemen are massive. And it's just like they're just not really being asked to do. I think Whitworth went on this rant the other day, yeah. like kind of the same principle. And he would know a thousand times better than me. But yeah, it's just it's just it, the adjustment to, to this to, to the NFL from college is steeper, I think, because of what they're being asked to do at the college level. And, and it's, I think, almost as simple as that sometimes. Yeah, Andrew Whitworth did have a good bit on this on uh, Kevin Clark's podcast. Uh, so that's worth listening to. And he, he made the same kind of point, right? When you watch these guys in college, it's a different world. They're not being asked to do the same thing. And the only area where I think is different. So I think, obviously, the practice time thing does make a difference, but I don't think it's the actual crux of it. I know Mitchell Schwartz has talked before. He thinks that's an excuse a lot of the time. Like people say, oh, the practice time, but you have enough practice time to fix things you need to fix. And that's not happening. Where I think the problem actually is, and, and by the way, so the, the initial question, yes, the PFF data does support a fairly steady decline in offensive line play. You go back 10 years and you see a completely different, even just in broad strokes, you go back and look in premium stats, look at the shading of the offensive line at the top of the rankings and how far down that goes and then compare it to 2023 it is a very different world we are seeing a fairly steady decline in offensive line play it's also corresponding to i think an increase in defensive line play and i think there's a little bit of of give and take there um but i think overall offensive line play is declining Practice time, I think, is a contributing factor, but I don't think it's the biggest one. What I think the problem is, that difference between the college schemes and NFL schemes, it's not that the, the, they have to get so much better now between that level and the NFL to be functional, because I think that's doable. It's, you don't know if people can do that. Like, we, we have this sort of basic assumption, well, he's got to do this, now he's got to learn all this stuff. Half of them aren't going to be able to learn that, and they're just not going to be viable NFL players. And if they were running pro-style schemes in college, you would know that, right? You would already have eliminated the, those guys. You wouldn't even be looking at them as you know, potentially viable starting players at the next level. you just say, no, that guy has this problem with his pass set. That guy has this problem with whatever. You would have already taken them off the board. They're out. Um, now they're like, well, everything I see says he could be a really good player at the next level. But we need to make, you know, we need to teach him our, our set and our scheme and blah, blah, blah. And we've no idea if that can happen or not. So that you get all these guys drafted because they were great college players and they've got the physical attributes. And if we can just teach them NFL uh, technique, we're good. And then they, they're never, never able to learn or adapt to that NFL technique. And so those players are sort of chewing up playing time that the players that could potentially get there don't even see the practice time or the reps or any of this stuff. So it's like a a compounding problem where those players, I think, drag everything down. I think the last piece for me, too, is they're probably, again, it's over-exaggerated, but to a degree, like, guards or even the right side of the offensive line were probably like, all right, you're the run blockers. We want you to be maulers in the run game and just be like, don't be a liability in pass pro. Right. And then, all right, you got your left tackle, um, you know, blindside protector. You're going to be the great, great pass, yada, yada. Now it's like, no, guards and centers, you're going to be facing these freak interior pass rushers because uh, D tackles aren't just run defenders anymore. And again, there obviously were pass rushing interior guys in the past, but like now there's way more and they're way better and they're on your toes quicker. Um, and you, so you have to do that and be able to displace, you know, displace guys in the run game. 
they're just being asked to do so much at the NFL level, like you said, against a better and better you know defensive line opponents. And it's a very different job now than it used to be as well. Like we talk all the time about how if you go back and watch like 2007 tape, it's a different game. I mean, it's it's all under center. It's seven step drops. It's play action. Like the job of pass protection in the NFL for a tackle is a different world now than it used to be. Now, it's not like it's not all one direction because even though there's more passing now and there's a ton of shotgun stuff and there's a ton of, you know, true pass sets, there's also RPOs and there's quick game and there's a whole bunch of stuff where you're not really pass protecting or it's a lot easier to pass protect. So you have a bunch of easier plays now, but you also have a bunch of plays that are way harder than they used to be. And I I think that's definitely a factor as well that the whole job description is wildly different than it used to be back in 2007 where the majority of your time was spent run blocking even the pass blocking you were doing there was a lot of heavy play action you know there was a lot of it was a very different world and pass rushers pass rushing wasn't as keyed up to stop it because you know they had easier reps they didn't you know not everything was a quick game where like if we don't win in two seconds we're not winning so i think the whole job description is different and i'm sure that affects it as well I'm just not 100% sure how. Yeah, no, it's and the best schemers right now, too, which I think has been fascinating, is like the Niners outside of Trent Williams like don't have difference makers on the offensive line. The, the Dolphins have had kind of career years from a bunch of guys, but like I think they're maybe realizing the, the return on investment or, or the, the you know diminishing returns of either you're going to be great there or it's not going to be a strength, but it would just be better to just work around it as opposed to kind of try to try to fix a problem that right now is not fixable. Um, but then you also get the counters. You get, you know, the teams that are kind of zigging when everyone else is zagging and going more, you know, I mean, you look at the Rams, like pivoting to kind of a gap scheme and going out and getting a Dotson, adding a Steve Avila. I think guys that are pretty good right now, um, you, you know, at just kind of moving forward and just winning one-on-one matchups. Like it's, it's, I guess those are two very opposite directions to go with it. But, yeah, you you got to pick a lane right now with what you're trying to accomplish, what you're trying to do, I think, and really stick with it. All right, that'll be our show today and for the week. No boo-boo breakdown this week, unfortunately. Vic is uh, traveling for to spend time during the holidays with his family. I know it's, a, it's the thing that's frowned upon in our industry and in our place of business, but that's what he's doing. We're out of here. We'll see you next week. Steve and I will be back on Tuesday at 9 a.m. Thanks for listening.